vision. Okay? With that, pray with me one more time, and we're going to get into the sermon. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, we understand that we are in times of great trouble. But Lord, help our hearts to be filled with a non-anxious presence of the Spirit so we would have peace. Help us, Lord, to anchor ourselves on the Word of God. Lord, I know that we are busy, but we need to do a little bit more work in terms of becoming missional theologians, becoming disciple-makers, thinking more sharply, loving more, expanding our focus, and expanding our, our heart, I mean, and our generosity, but at the same time, focusing on disciple-making. That means setting aside other things that are recreational, other things that are good things, but it may not be the best thing for this moment in the church age. Help us, Lord, even now to go into your word and to do this well. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. I've entitled today's message, Great Trouble, Greater Trust. Great Trouble, Greater Trust. And today I want to speak to this big idea, this big idea. You get the big idea up front because John puts the big idea in verse 1. And I want to speak to this big idea that great trouble in Jesus' world calls for greater trust from Jesus' people. Let me say that again. Great trouble in Jesus' world calls for greater trust from Jesus' people. Now, if you take God's word and turn to me, John chapter 14, verse 1, you will see where this is the main point of John 14. This is the main point of the entire chapter of John 14. John, John 14 talks about the Holy Spirit coming. It talks about how Jesus is going to commission the Holy Spirit. It talks about having peace. That leads into chapter 15 where we are called a commission, and commanded to remain in Christ. And chapter 16, more detail about the Holy Spirit because Jesus is leaving. But chapter 14 sets you up for that. John 14, 1, let me read it to you and hear this. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, don't let your heart be troubled. This is an imperative. This is a command. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, in your Greek, for I know there's some seminarians in here, I see you, I see you, okay, that the believe in God and believe also are in the indicative, but if you look at your exegetical guide, this is what we call, it can be an imperative imperative, right? So you have a triple imperative, you have indicatives functioning in an imperative. I need to say that because some of you will check me, and that keeps me a student of the Word, knowing that there are seminarians, and, and I saw the other day a, a seminary professor in here as well, you know, talk about keeping ourselves accountable. So let your hearts not be troubled is a command. Jesus commands us in the imperative, and then he repeats it in a double imperative, believe in God, believe also in me. So he's saying, trust me. Trust me. But then you go down to 14, verse 27. So that's a lot of real estate in the word where you pass over. And notice that he says the same thing again. Let not your hearts be troubled. But this time he says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. That's the peace that needs to be in our hearts. Right? It says, not as the world gives to you, I give to you. What does he give us? He gives us the Holy Spirit. 
He gives us his commands. He gives us his presence. He gives us his power. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled one more time. So in 27, it says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So love people, but have the hearts of valor. Have the hearts of a lion. Have courage in Christ. Humble courage. Trusting courage. Not bravado, but the type of courage that David had, where you have a man who was intimate with God, praying, writing the Psalms, a soft dude, but he knew how to use the rock and the sling, and he slept next to his sword. So the guy who writes poetry with a sword, our sword is the Bible, right? You see that in Moses, a man who loves his people, who loves his people but carried a staff. You see this in Jesus, a good shepherd who would lay down his life for his people, yet he's also the lion of Judah. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them not be afraid. Take heart. That's the main point if you didn't get it. And then the rest of it, the rest of the text supports it, okay? So in the rest of our passage now, in verses 2 to 14, we see three reasons. There's more than three reasons, but I want to highlight three reasons of why, right? So, so he gave us the command, let not your hearts be troubled, but trust in Christ. Why? There are three reasons for greater trust in Christ. And the first reason is because Jesus secures our future. Jesus secures our future. In verses 2 to 4, Jesus is speaking of what has yet to take place. It's going to happen. He's going to leave them. But when we look at the scriptures, this has already happened. So we look at this as Jesus secures our future. Now let me read to you verses 2 to 4. It says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Stop right there for a second before I read more. Jesus, where's my hotel room? Where's my hotel key? I'm your hotel and your hospital. You think heaven that I was going to leave you alone and let you do your thing? Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Heaven is heaven because it's the place of the presence of God. Don't miss that. It's not about the rooms. It's not about your room. It's not about your room key, whether it's a suite or a shack. Okay, it's not about any of that. It's not about how big the house is or what the house looks like. Right? It's talking about, I am going to take you to myself, that where I am going, you may also be. So let that be your interpretive key. Now, verse 4. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas acting like Thomas the train rather than the one who's been trained. He, he doesn't know where he's asking for Google Maps. Where are you going? I've, I've been with you. I taught you I'm going to the Father. Well, you're going to see that come clear. Okay, so number one, first, Jesus reassures his disciples by focusing on their future. And that's what you and I need to hear during times of trouble. In times of trouble, we tend to be overwhelmed and troubled by the present. And so we tend to react to every hotbed issue that's pressing down the church or our lives in the present. And Jesus says, let your not hearts be troubled because you know where I'm going. And he says, I'm going to prepare 
a place for you. Now, there's been a lot of cute literature about what, what these rooms look like. And if you're not evangelical, there's even these uh, scholars that talk about different stages of getting to heaven. As, as the many rooms. So there's purgatory, and then there's, there's, there's a place of in-between, and then you finally get to heaven. That, I don't think, I don't take any of that. I don't even think the metaphor is just saying there's going to be a lot of space. And so here's the point. He's saying he's got to leave them, and he's got to die. And they're like, Jesus, no, you can't die. You can't leave. If I don't go to the Father, you can't come. So Jesus is basically saying, I need to die for your sins. I need to go to God so that you can come with me. And in my house, there's many spaces, meaning I'm go the gospel's for the nations. That there will be many rooms for the many people that will encompass the people of God. That's all he's saying. He's saying, I got to go. I have the way, the truth, and the life. Context. I'm going to go to the cross. Context. And when I go to the cross, I'm going to die for many, and I'm going to bring them all to me. And once again, the focus is I'm going to come again, and I will take you to myself. Different views on what that means. Does this mean he's going to come back and see his disciples face-to-face -face before he ascends? That's true, but I don't think that's what this is talking about here. I think in verse 3, I take the view and side with the scholars who say this is talking about his second coming. In his second coming, he will come again, and we will meet him in the air. And I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am going, you will also be. And you know the way. And so, once again, Thomas, English muffin in hand, you know, and he's asking Jesus, I still don't get it. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I thought you graduated discipleship school. But this shows us why even his disciples need the Holy Spirit. You know, oftentimes, well-meaning, we as Christians, we act like Thomas. So don't hate on Thomas. Right? We're actually asking Jesus, because we love our GPS, Jesus, can you give me the exact coordinates in a five-principled book? What are the five steps to Christian, Christian maturity? Give me the five steps. If I read this book, take this class, take these steps, then I'll become more like Jesus. Or maybe in a, a non-evangelical sense, what are the five good works I need to do in order to earn my way to heaven? Show us the way. We don't know where you're going. Show us so we can follow you. He's thinking, well, what's the path? Where are you going? We don't know the place where you're going. So give us the, the back roads of Jerusalem. Where exactly are you going? And the answer is Christ, right? Jesus says, you, you, you're coming to me. He is the way. But before he gets to that famous statement, let me show you verse 28. Take a peek at verse 28. I don't have it on the screen for you, but look at verse 28, John 14, 28. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away. I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going away because I'm going to go die for your sins so that you can be saved, right? Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. So that's the answer to Thomas's question. Where are you going? I'm going to the Father. Now that leads us to point number two, which is, or reason number two, I'm sorry. So the command, let not your hearts be troubled, greater trust, 
Instead, trust in Christ. Why? Reason number two is because Jesus is the only way to salvation. Not only does Jesus secure our, secure our future, but he's the only way to salvation. You see, for the Jews, when you heard that term, I'm going to God the Father, access to the Father means salvation for the Jews. Because access to the Father meant your sins are forgiven, your sins are atoned for, and you can have a relationship with God the Father, Yahweh. And so for us today, this is simply salvation. Now look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is a famous verse that many of you have understood. And this is set again in the context of let not your hearts be troubled, but trust in Christ. Why? Because he is the way. He's the truth and he is the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him because you've seen him. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What do you talk about, Jesus? We want to see God. Remember Moses? Moses says, God, you know what? You've, you've spoken with me. We have this personal relationship. I trust you. Can I just see you? God says, tells Moses, you'll die. No man can see me. If I had Instagram, it'd be instant death. So get in, that, get in the crevice right there. Hide in the cleft of that rock and get up in there. And I'm just going to pass by you. And my glory is going to pass by. And you're going to get a glimpse of my backside. My backside. Because no man can look at God and live. Because man is sinful. God is holy. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah, he sees the pre-incarnate Christ sitting on the throne, and the first thing he says, woe is me, woe is me, meaning I'm going to die because I've seen the Lord, and no one's allowed to see the Lord. And so here's Jesus now telling his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, but Jesus, we're not dead. Yeah, because I'm going to die for you. If you've seen Christ, you've seen God the Father. Right, so a lot of people ask, like, where is God? Why doesn't God show up? Jesus Christ, as laid out in the Word, is everything we need to know about God. Now, he says he's the way. What does he mean by the way? There's a lot of ways. There's many ways, but there's only one way to God. And so when he says he's the way, he's saying he's the only way to salvation. Jesus Christ is the only way to be to. Uh, be saved from the eternal judgment of God and to have eternal life in heaven in the presence of God with God. When he says he's the truth, he is the revelation of God. All of the scripture points towards Christ and all of the scriptures find their fulfillment in and through Christ. Right? So when he says he's the truth, he's saying everything that he affirms, everything that he teaches is the revelation of God's truth. And for you and me, the Bible is our source of truth because the Bible tells us everything we need to know about Jesus. So you can say, I believe in Jesus. But then the question is, which Jesus? The Jehovah's Witness version of Jesus? Mormon Jesus? Muslim Jesus? What Jesus? Jesus. What Jesus? Well, the Jesus of the Bible. Right? Which salvation? The salvation that's laid out through Jesus of the Bible. So Jesus Christ reveals God to us, and he's the truth. And then we've been talking about this in the Gospel of John. When he says he's the life, he's talking about he's the source of life. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Jesus Christ was the Word when God said, let there be light in Genesis 1. He's speaking life through the agency and the power of His Son. And then, not only that, but Jesus gives us eternal life. So Jesus Christ is the source of the old creation, and he's the source of the new creation that leads to being born again unto eternal life. And Jesus is the only way to eternal life. In him is true life. Now we got to get to Philip, so i got to move on. But in verses 8 to 11, now don't hate on Thomas. Okay, don't hate on Thomas. Because there's Philip. There's Philip. And at this point, Philip has yet to be filled up. Okay, with the Holy Spirit. So he lacks illumination. I heard somebody laugh over there. Thank you. I don't work on these. Okay. Uh, Philip turns to show how he didn't get it right. He didn't get it right, at least at this point. Rather than asking for directions, though, he asked for divine revelation. He asked for divine revelation. So get this. I mean, if you're Jesus, you might be offended, but Jesus is not offended. Okay. So Jesus himself has revealed God to them. And Philip, his disciple, is about to ask him, hey, can you just, we just want to see God. I've just shown you God. For three years I've been walking with you, performing miracles, telling you that I'm the son of God, and now you're asking me? Okay, so let me read it to you, verses 8 to 11. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Just show us the Father. Just stop it, Jesus you know, turning water into wine and healing the sick and calming the, commanding the storm to stop and all of that, just feeding the multitude. Just stop it with Jesus with all your antics. Just show us the Father. That's all we want to see. And that's enough for us. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you stu- still do not know me, Philip? Meaning, have you not been with me and you're about to graduate and you still don't understand Algebra 1? Oh, come on, Philip. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. And once again, I want you to notice Imperative, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Works themselves simply refers to all the miracles and signs that Jesus performed. Basically, if you don't believe the words I'm saying, look at my works. Jesus' words and his works speak to the reality that he is the Son of God and that he is God. He's divine. But let me show you how when we look at the doubts of Thomas and Philip, it should encourage us as we live in the post-Christian world. Don't hate on Thomas and Philip because Jesus' very own inner circle lacked clarity of his true identity. Why? Because they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit. So when you have, when you have that person who's around Christians, but they don't really understand the Christian life, you can't get angry. Even Jesus' disciples didn't get it right because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. That should encourage you. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us illumination. 
He reveals the true identity of Jesus, and he helps us understand Jesus' teaching. We have the Holy Spirit, right? So we should not, cannot judge the unbelieving world with anger and antagonism. There's a difference between good judgment versus being judgmental. The first one makes you wise and discerning. The other one means you're a jerk. It's one thing to look at unbelievers or to even look at a pride prayed and just to hate them and say, look at how despicable these sinners are. It's another thing to read your Bibles and realize, man, these people don't have God, and if I didn't have God, I might be there too. So I have good discernment and judgment that that is not the right way, but that's not the best way. That's not God's good way. That's not the goodness of God. But we respect that these are human beings made in the image of God, made in the image of God, but not aligned with God's will. So how can we show love without compromising? How can we pray maybe without participation? How can we understand that even Thomas and Philip didn't understand the identity of Jesus Christ? How could an unbelieving world, especially those and nowadays in a post-Christian world who has not heard of what the Ten Commandments are, or you say Noah's flood, they're like, what? That's what it's going to be like, and we need to prepare ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves by understanding the importance of the Holy Spirit. But also, the answer to Philip's question is that Christ is the sufficient revelation of God. I'll give you more application here. That Jesus reveals to us everything we need to know about God the Father. Jesus Christ doesn't reveal to us everything there is to know about God. There's the mysteries of God. There's the immense, uh, divine, heavenly nature of God. There are things that in our finite minds we will not, never understand in this lifetime. So Jesus is not saying, I'm telling you every single thing there is to know about God, the Father, and the mysterious plans of God. But what he is saying is that everything that human beings need to know, it's sufficient in Christ. So nowadays, there, is, there are a lot of Christians deconstructing the faith. There are a lot of Christians... Uh, the well-meaning ones kind of deconstruct the church hurts or society or whatever they've gone through, and they deconstruct their faith, and they question Christianity, and they reconstruct it back to something. Others deconstruct their faith, and they leave their faith. They basically say, whatever Christianity taught me, I realize now that either science is more important or I want to be, be more free from Christianity. And oftentimes my question is, what exactly are you deconstructing? You're certainly not deconstructing Jesus. So are you deconstructing your hurt in an immigrant church? Are you deconstructing Christian hypocrisy? Because Christians are not perfect and there's a lot of sinful and false Christians. Are you uh, deconstructing spiritual abuse in horrible situations? Are you deconstructing the moral failure of Christian leaders? Are you deconstructing that something about your orientation or your lifestyle doesn't match up with the Bible? Are you, what are you deconstructing? Because if you're saying science, science is good, it's a wrong tool. It doesn't prove or disprove Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, if you truly deconstruct Christianity to its foundation, you're going to find Christ. And if you reconstruct it according to Ephesians and Acts and 1 Corinthians, you're going to find the body of Christ. Don't be deceived. 
If you deconstruct Christianity, not big evangelical, not evangelism, not political majority culture, not church hurt, not a horrible example of a church, not church mistakes, not hypocritical Christians. If you deconstruct historical Christianity for what it really is, you are going to get back to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life as the foundation at the bottom, the rock at the bottom of the rubble. And when you reconstruct it, you will find the body of Christ. There is no Christianity apart from the church. No. And there is no church apart from the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so Philip and Thomas's doubt is answered by Jesus saying, if you've seen Christ, that's sufficient. And I think the challenge today is that for many people, Christ will not be sufficient. And the, and the Bible will not be sufficient. And that is why. You know, this is what I'm saying. Prophetic versus reactive. Reactive leadership is every hotbed political issue comes up and the church just speaks to it and reacts to it. And I think there's sometimes in Sunday school or private discussion where that's necessary. But prophetic is teaching God's people what you feel from the scriptures God wants the people to hear and what they need to hear in order to not just react to all of these things, one of these issues, but all of these issues, how to live as a Christian. And I will tell you that the answer to Christian living is not attacking every single hotbed social issue, but it goes back down to understand the doctrine of scripture and the authority of scripture. And if you start there, you will eventually be able to navigate all of these issues, guarantee you. Because Jesus Christ is the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. And if you don't have Christ as the foundation, and if you don't have a robust understanding of Scripture, you're not going anywhere. Let me share with you something that will offend some of you. The moral majority does not hold to the authority of Scripture. The church does. You won't find your answers in the moral majority. You find your answers not in Big Eva, but in the true evangelical church that preaches Christ in Scripture and teaches people how to handle systematic theology, what the entire Bible says about various topics about God and, and Christian living, and how to do hermeneutics, how to study your Bible, how to use your sword, how to use your sword. Before I keep preaching on that, let me go on to reason number three. Reason number three kind of breaks the thought process a little bit, but it does tell you the third reason why our hearts must not be troubled, but we need to trust in God is because Jesus works through our prayer and our practice. So not only does he secure our future, not only is he the only way to salvation, but the third reason why our hearts must not be troubled and we need greater trust in Christ is because Christ works through our prayer and practice. Prayer, in other words, fuels the work Christ does through us. And greater trust in Christ is conveyed through prayer. Our prayer is that Christ would do his great work through us despite a world of opposition. Let me read to you the two verses, 12 to 14. And I know... And I've done it. I went back and looked at my sermon uh, database, and you can do an entire one, two, three sermons on just verse 13 and 14. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? But we can't do that this morning. Okay, so don't send me the hate mail. Oh, you didn't spend 30 minutes talking about it. All, all I'll say is this. Pray in Jesus' name. Especially today, 
When you say in his name, that's okay, but people outside don't know what that is anymore. We are in a post-Christian world. If you want to hide, say in his name, Allah's name, you know, whatever. But I need you to be more bold. Teach your kids in Jesus Christ's name. Because they will need to hang on to that simple truth. They will not remember every sermon, but they will remember every prayer. Because you repeat it. Teach your kids Jesus' name alone. Jesus Christ's name. It's okay if you say, oh, you know, every so often, right, in his name we pray, in the name of the good God. Which good God? Jesus Christ. Christ alone. We're in a different world, brothers and sisters. You can't, you can't expect that your kids go to college and they're going to hear it from some fellowship. Verse 12 and 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, Jesus Christ's name, I will do it. Now, when he says, whoever believes in me, he's repeating that, that exhortation, believe, 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 trust, will also do the works that I do and greater works. Very clearly, this is not saying that we'll do more qualitative work than Christ. No one is going to calm the seas. There's not one surfer I've seen uh, that tried. The first surfer was Peter, and he failed. Okay, he fell. And so no one is going to feed 5,000 of the multitude. We have a great special events team that can feed a lot of people. They cannot feed like Jesus feed, fed. Okay, nobody can do that. So none of us are going to do greater works than Jesus. None of us are going to do greater quality or quantity. If you look at it that way, none of us are going to die and <laughs> die for the sins of man and to rise again. So what does he talk about? He's talking about the Great Commission. He's saying that he died on the cross to secure the salvation of many. But he left the work for spirit-empowered disciples like you and me, ordinary people, to do extraordinary work. That we will do the greater commission, the Great Commission. That we will be sent out and we will bring in more people than he brought in. He finished the work, right, on the cross. We are the messengers that proclaim the message about the finished work. And the Spirit brings people in to the family of God. And so it's very clear for those of you who are reformed in your thinking. Jesus died on the cross to secure a people a people who he knows who they are. Then he sends his Holy Spirit down and fills us, and he says, go get them. I died for them. I know who they are. There's a set number. Go get them. Because their salvation is guaranteed because Christ died for them. Now, church, don't be afraid. You don't have to try to win them. You need to be loving. You don't have to be uh, convincing. Go get them. Jesus died. He finished the work. It is finished. Every elect has been paid for their sins. Church, you go get them. You're going to do greater works than me. That's what he means. And when he says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. When you say, Jesus Christ, please, please, please give me a Ferrari. I will drive very fast for you. He's going to say, I need you to fast for me. Okay, I don't need you to drive very fast for me. I don't think him giving you a Porsche or a Ferrari, if you have one, I'm not condemning you for that, uh, as long as you are generous and you're giving to the Lord, okay, and then you prioritize things rightly. If you have a Ferrari, please talk to me. 
please, please talk to me. I've always wanted to live my fast and furious dream. Uh, but, 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 <laughs> um, I don't think if you ask for a Ferrari or Porsche that that brings glory to God. It doesn't help the kingdom. It doesn't, right? So what does he talk about? Context. He's saying, when you pray in the context of the Great Commission, when you pray, Lord, help me to do this great thing, these greater things for you. Help me first, help me to, be, to grow in Christ-likeness. Help me to grow in Christ so that I can be a better witness and example. And give me the words to say, uh, and pray for your neighbor, pray for your coworkers. Give me open opportunities for the gospel. Help me evangelize. Help me. If you ask, he will do it. Help me to use my spiritual gifts in the church so that others will be blessed and the people will come to Christ. Ask. Ask anything in the context of doing greater things for him and the Holy Spirit will do it. Okay? And once again, Jesus commands us, let not our hearts be troubled. Instead, trust in him. The big idea this morning once again, is the great trouble in Jesus' world calls for greater trust from Jesus' people. Great trouble in Jesus' world calls for greater trust in Jesus' people. As we go out, I know that we're entering the new church here. I want to ask specifically all of the small group leaders and the community group leaders, and, and Pastor Terrence and I have had the great time of addressing you back in June. We trust you. I want to say that. We love you and we trust you. In the English congregation, we never tell you. It, it's never worked. Everybody read this book. Everyone discuss the sermon. You guys are like too democracy-free kind of thing. But you'll wear your mask. You know, it's funny. <laughs> Everybody mask up. <laughs> that, that's, the thing about, that's the thing about Asians, right? Asian conservative Christians, like uh, conservative in policy, but then, you know, you're, but, then, but then you're on the other side when it comes to safety and things like that, right? We just don't match with Arkansas and Alabama. But anyway, you get my point. I don't want to impede your freedom, but I need you to pray about this. Consider how in your groups you will focus your attention on disciple making and that we will resource you. I want to say, how many of you guys actually went out? I didn't want you to do this and already bought this book, Christian Theology. Anybody already bought it? I know you did. Okay, anybody else? Come see me. Come see me. Okay, I want to, I wanna, um, unless you, you don't care about the money, which I respect you on that, but I want to subsidize it. What happened is that um, the author is a friend of Pastor Terrence, okay? So we can get it directly for under 10 bucks a pop. I was going to sell it to you for 15, so there's skin in the game, okay? Um, I might do that. I might do that, and you will know exactly where that money is going, okay? Like, we'll buy a sonogram machine or something like that, okay? But I'm not saying we're going to do that. I've got to check with finance, sorry. But <laughs> we, we're going to subsidize it for every single person who actually comes to the class and purchases the book, okay? If you already bought it, and there's not too many of you, come talk to me. I want to subsidize it for you. Give me the receipt. Give me the receipt. I want to reimburse you for the rest of it. But if you're like, nah, this money's not an issue, that's fine. Okay, but we want to charge you something so there's skin in the game. I highly encourage you guys. If you can't come to the class, maybe you guys can discuss it in groups. Okay, maybe there's some way. Okay, think about it. Think about it. It's not just about knowledge. Just to be clear, this book does not teach you, you know, how do, how do you deal with abortion in this world? How do you deal with racism in the world? How do you deal with gender issues? That's not this kind of book. This book begins with the doctrine of Scripture. Then it talks about the attributes of God. You need to be able to teach people 
that when you have a gay or transgender teacher or coworker who does not have the Holy Spirit, does not have the Holy Spirit, how, how do you respect that person that's made in the image of God, yet speak and teach that that is not God's way, and that's not your preference, but to do it with love. So that's where you're emphasizing not only is God's way the right way, but it is the best, wisest, and good way. And we teach our kids not only what is right and wrong, but what is the goodness of God so that they respect people in the world that they need to live in because they're made in the image of God while recognizing, recognizing spiritual wisdom. Because, because, sad truth is, your kids and the emerging generation will come back to you. How come they're so nice and you Christians are so hateful? And there's got to be a way where we say, look, you know what? Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. And his way is truth. And we're not hateful. We can't compromise. But we have to love. What does that love look like? Beloved, whether you like it or not, you are entering a post-Christian world. Whether you want to set aside 30 minutes of your Netflix time, one hour, okay, or, or traveling, which is, not, which is not a sin. Go ahead, do that. I went on vacation, eating in good restaurants, playing together, that recreation, do it. But can you give a little bit of that time to say, hey, to be a Christian in today's world, it costs something. We're not being thrown in prison yet. We're not being tortured. Our homes aren't being raided. But there is a cost. There is a cost. And suburban Christians, you have to be ready but as your pastors, if we're calling you to do that, we will work harder. We love you. We want to do this together, but we need everyone at the table. I'll say more next time I get an opportunity to preach with next week. Let's pray. Father, we are not in times where we can just be easy. Lord, we need to take the call to discipleship seriously. We need to recognize, Lord, not only do we need to know what the Bible teaches in terms of right and wrong, but we need to navigate the gray zone. We need to be disciples with a non-anxious presence in this world. We need to be disciples, Lord, who can speak winsomely, wisely, lovingly, but yet with conviction. We need to not compromise, but still have compassion. We need to teach the emerging generation and ourselves how to be the church like it was in the book of Acts. Lord, will you empower us, grounded on Christ, the only way, truth, and the life. Help us to do that as a church. As a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.